You are listening to the Next Best Picture podcast, and this is Emma Sassick's interview with the Oscar-nominated editor for Top Gun Maverick, Eddie Hamilton, and Will Mavity's interview with the Oscar-nominated sound team, re-recording mixer Chris Burden, supervising sound editor Al Nelson, and sound mixer Mark Weingarten. 30-plus years of service. Combat medals. Citations. Only man to shoot down three enemy planes in the last 40 years. Yet you can't get a promotion. You won't retire. Despite your best efforts, you refuse to die. You should be at least a two-star admiral by now. Yet here you are, Captain. What is that? It's one of life's mysteries, sir. First, I just want to start off by saying congratulations on such a, I'm sure, a whirlwind of a past year for you. Uh, not only the massive success of this film, but you yourself earned your very first Oscar nomination. I mean, my goodness. <laughs> I know, it's insane. It's nuts. It's surreal to be honest. I'm struggling to process it. The films that I've done, or that I have done, are not normally considered for this kind of award. So it's extremely exciting for me. And obviously a dream come true because you grow up, if you want to work in the film industry, obviously that that's, you know, getting kind of awards nominations is something which you, you wonder if it'll happen. And, um, it's amazing that it's happened. It's, it's, you know, it's so cool. It's great for my friends and family who've all supported me over 30 years, you know. <laughs> That's just wonderful. It's always great to see it happen to somebody who has worked so hard and so long uh, in this career. Um, did you, from a young age, know that you wanted to be involved in, in films in one way or another? How did film editing kind of come about for you? Okay, so I, I I realized that people made films when I was about eight years old. Okay, when I first realized that the names that were on at the end of a film were like real people who made films. And then I was obsessed uh, and read books and watched as many films as I could and listened to music. But it was when I was about 17 that I kind of hooked up two VHS machines and sort of played around with editing on videotapes and then and realized that the combination of storytelling and technology worked for me. So uh, I, I thought I'd be a writer-director because everyone thinks they're going to be Steven Spielberg when they're a kid. <laughs> um, but, you know, I found that my particular kind of, I guess, my my personality and my, I don't know, it just, it just editing kind of fitted because, let's be honest, editing is the best job because you have ultimate power over everything the audience sees and hears really from do. the beginning to the end. And you have, you know, on a film like Top Gun, you may have 300 people working to get the stuff to happen between action and cut. And then it all goes into your computer. <laughs> so and then it's all channeled through you. And then it all goes back out to sound and music and visual effects after that. And so it's a, it's it's an incredible uh, privilege as well, because you're the first person to see the film come to life, you know, when you start cutting shots together. and. So that, that, I think it's the best job. 
as they say, with great power comes great responsibility. <laughs> exactly, exactly. I did actually want to say how surreal it must be for you to be nominated alongside Steven Spielberg in this year's uh, class. I mean, is that totally even nuts? So, so in the photograph, in the Oscar photograph, uh, last Monday at the luncheon, he literally came and stood right in front of me oh my during gosh. the photograph. I know he walked over, and I was like Steven Spielberg. He looked at me and smiled, and I said, "Hi, I'm Eddie. I edited Top Gun Maverick." And he's like, I've seen it six times. I took all my grandchildren. I wow. love it. it. It was a fantastic, you know, you guys saved cinema. And he was enthusiastic and clearly like a living legend. So it was astonishing that I got to talk to him. And I got to tell him thank you for his, you know, decades of entertainment he's given everybody in the world. <laughs> you know, What an absolute but, sweet moment. Oh, my word. Are you kidding? It was amazing. It, <laughs> it, and then what was great is he just turned around and took a selfie with everybody oh. on his phone. I know. He was like, hey, everybody, look this way. And he just snapped a selfie. Isn't that nuts? I know. It's, it's so, so nice. It's Amazing. so nice to see him still having fun after all this time. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It was just, it was terrific. Really great. <laughs> um, since you obviously did get to, as you said, kind of see this film, first person to see this footage after every single day, my gosh, you must have been tired editing all of that because this movie oh, did for, not let you rest. <laughs> no, no, no. Top Gun, yeah, it was it was the hardest thing I've ever done by many orders of magnitude. I, mm. I can't, you're in an editorial meat grinder for month after month after month. There's so much pressure. There's so much footage. I was putting pressure on myself because I wanted the film to be amazing. I feel the weight of expectation of the whole worldwide audience. You know, we all do. Everyone on the film crew felt that. No one thinks that making a sequel to Top Gun is a good idea. The entire audience is sat there with their arms crossed. I don't know when you saw the film, whether you were like, what are you guys doing? It's, <laughs> it's, it, it, you're all traitors. How dare you try and make a sequel to this <laughs> perfect 1980s milestone of cinema? And so it was, it was, you know, quite, the pressure really got to me at times. It was very overwhelming, to be honest. But, mm. you know, we kept telling ourselves that we had to eat the elephant one bite at a time. Mm. So when when we were really in the trenches and really tired and we'd be just been working long day after long day for months, we, you know, you, you just have to kind of disconnect from the, from the macro and focus on just those very small steps in front of you and just, just take everything a step at a time. Um, but it was it's months and months and months and months of work but and and interestingly the film really only came together properly in about the last sort of five months oh, really? of two years of editing so you know as usual on these movies they film a lot a lot of um, different options because you're there on the day and so you're, we were really trying to focus the story on Maverick and Rooster and, you know, make it very subjectively from Maverick's point of view. And it, it sounds easy because when you watch the film, it all just flows. But I promise you, it was, it was incredibly difficult to get the balance of all the characters right, to figure out how many close-ups to give each person in each scene. Because there's a hierarchy, there's a pyramid with Maverick at the top mm -hmm. and then Rooster and Hangman, Phoenix, Bob, Payback, Fanboy. You know, and you have to basically communicate to the audience how important everybody is and how much power everyone has in the scene based on the kind of coverage that you use and how much 
how many close-ups you give each character and and finding that so that you you understood that you know Maverick and Rooster was the core conflict in the story and it, it took a very long time it was it was quite a challenge but you know we got there in the end you know, I mean, it was I... a team effort though uh, Tom Cruise Christopher McQuarrie we were all in the editing room like figuring it out together you know from for just month after month after month I mean I can just imagine I'm sure you being handed so many more hours of footage than the final product ended up being <laughs> yeah no it was a lot and you know there are no shortcuts when you're editing a film your job is to make sure that all the best footage is in the movie and to not take any shortcuts be thorough you know check everything it was always just a, so much coverage i mean so much footage for every moment and everything started out much much longer mm. so the very first dogfight which is where we play won't get fooled again by the who and they're doing all the push-ups Right. So that, and then, and then you go into the Rooster and Maverick's death spiral. That was originally, I was going to say, about fifteen minutes, like the first assembly that we did. And then in the finished movie, it's about you know maybe six minutes or six minutes twenty or something. So we we crushed, we compressed everything an enormous amount, and to compress a sequence and yet still keep it um, comprehensible, mm-hmm. and for all the emotional beats to land and. It's so difficult. Um, it, it it looks deceptively easy when you watch the movie, but we tr- we went round and round and round trying stuff over and over again to get it to flow just exactly right, you know. And to still man- maintain that that suspense, the on the edge of your seat feeling with with each of these sequences. I mean, yeah. I'm somebody who cannot handle a regular plane ride as is. I'm not the most confident flyer. To see this film is a nightmare for somebody like me. <laughs> you know, the, the problem when you're editing also is I've seen the film 700 times. Oh gosh, I'm not exaggerating. Can... <laughs> Each scene I've seen hundreds of times Yeah, because you're working on it. Sometimes you'll watch it 10 times in a single day, more. Sometimes you'll watch it 20 times in a day, each scene, mm-hmm. because you're kind of combing through every every single tiny nuance of every shot you're interrogating every frame of the movie to check it earns its place in the film and so by the time you finish and you know just in the sound mix alone i watched it 20 or 30 times through you you're um you have no idea if the film works you're relying entirely on instinct and the expertise of the other producers and you know the, the other collaborators on the film but because of lockdown we couldn't screen the movie when it was finished so we didn't know the first time anyone ever saw it outside of the bubble of the film of eight people was when we did our first screening at cinemacon in uh, may of i guess 2022 mm-hmm. and like 3000 people saw the movie so and but luckily the result was you know the reaction was ecstatic and very positive and so it was an enormous relief i was actually in south africa with Tom Cruise and Chris McQuarrie, where we're filming the action climax of Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 2. We were in South Africa and we were so relieved when everybody came out of the cinema in Las Vegas and started tweeting about how, in, how much they liked the film. Because we were like, okay, it's going to be okay. We haven't let people down. You know? yeah. 
<laughs> I mean, what a sigh of relief, as you said, after two years of working on yes. this and memorizing, I'm sure, every single aspect of every yeah. single shot yeah. at this point. Yeah, I can still remember it all, all 800 hours of footage. It's all in my brain somewhere. <laughs> it's like I can remember every single angle and every piece of coverage and every line. You know, it, it, every, everything was worked at and worked at and honed and and polished and, you know, the quality control was so high on, on this film, driven by Tom Cruise and Jerry Bruckheimer and Joe Kaczynski. Mm -hmm. And uh, there was no compromise on quality. It's like every single moment from the first second of the movie where you see the Paramount logo and the, you hear the Top Gun anthem all the way through to the end of the credits. It was just had to be perfect all the way through. So that's what we were aiming for, you know. I know that um, at this point you have had a few opportunities to work with Tom on Mission Impossible films, uh, specifically yes. with Top Gun Maverick. Um, what is that collaboration process like in the editing bay and him being a main producer of this film? Yeah, he is. He's involved in a, on a daily basis in editing these movies. If he's not in the country with us, he will check in every day uh, and get an update on everything that's been happening or everything that we've tried out in the edit that day. And because he was on set when it was all filmed, he's aware of all the options and all the coverage. And so quite often we'll discuss what we're trying and ideas that we've had and stuff. And, and he won't even necessarily need to see it because he, he can imagine what we're talking about. And then he does keep some... Uh, objectivity though so when mm. we do eventually show him the scene he can give us you know clear guidance on what he feels is working uh, but it's invaluable he's you know has decades of experience of making these movies and his instincts are incredibly accurate about what the audience needs to understand or to connect with his character and what they what he wants them to feel beat for beat through the whole story i mean second by second through each sequence he's saying this is what the audience should feel this is what how i want them to feel and so our job is to help guide the ship in the right direction mm -hmm. you know it's nice to have that uh i'm sure it adds such a interesting perspective him being obviously in the film himself the the top build actor there being involved in all these scenes and then bringing yeah. in those I suppose attention to details in terms of what he felt like in that scene, all of that. Yeah, 100%. Process. Yeah. When you watch a Tom Cruise movie, he is the protagonist of the film uh, almost exclusively. And the audience's emotion is channeled through his character and how he's feeling. And he's, you know, the, the, the holy grail is for the audience to be in touch with how Maverick is feeling all the way through the movie. So you feel completely connected with his conflict and his dilemma and his sacrifice. It's the same with it's the same with Mission Impossible and Ethan Hunt, you know, constantly striving to make sure the audience is connected with that character through the entire running time of the movie. Um, so you're completely invested in the outcome of every suspense sequence and every action sequence and every dialogue scene, everything. But he, you know, he's involved in casting, he's involved in locations. Uh, cost hair and makeup, um, visual effects, music, script writing. I mean, he's involved in every part of the process. More than um, just the guy who is there to memorize his lines and show yeah, up when he exactly, needs to show up. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But that that's why the movies turn out so well, because he really 
you know, expects the best from all the collaborators around him. We all raise our game, you know, because mm-hmm. he sets the bar so high. Mm-hmm. Um, whenever I have the the pleasure to speak to a film editor, I can't help but ask, you know, what is one sequence that stands out to you either as in this was the best thing to edit down, this was the coolest thing that I've gotten to work, or this was such a pain in my ass to have to work on. What stands out for you with this film? <laughs> I tell you what gave me the most sleepless nights was yes. <laughs> the basically the final mission mm-hmm. um, up until the moment. So from the moment the, the jets take take off the carrier yeah. and they're flying into enemy territory. And then as they're doing the canyon run and, you know, the enemy fighters are coming and the uh, Tomahawk missiles are flying overhead and, and hitting the enemy base, all that. And, you know, rooster slowing down and speeding up, going under the bridges climbing up, do it, diving down, doing the trench run. I mean, doing the, you know, miracle number one, miracle number two. Yeah. And then the SAM attack. So the, the jets blast up and then the SAM missiles launch and they're doing all their countermeasures. That was months of work. Some days I would only do four or five seconds a day of that oh, sequence, wow. which sounds, maybe I think one, the, the smallest amount I did was seven seconds. I remember there was one Friday where I did, three seconds in the morning and four seconds in the afternoon <laughs> and you know because I'm going through so many choices for each tiny beat of the story and I want to make sure that it's the very best and when I'm editing I always stack up alternate options for every shot underneath mm-hmm. so if Tom Cruise or Jerry Bruckheimer walk in they can say can I see some other options for this moment and I have all those stack up so I'm really super thorough but there was a lot of photography, a lot. And that scene was much, much, much longer. And we were trying to get all this great terrain in and all, it had to be dynamic. And I don't know, it, 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 was, um, it was very difficult to figure out how to, how to have our cake and eat it, you know, and how to keep all the most dynamic shots. You know, and there were days where I just really couldn't, like, see the wood for the trees and I would go round in circles. And, and again, it, in the script, it's, it doesn't spell out everything that happens beat for beat. There's kind of rough descriptions of what happens and some lines of dialogue, but every line of dialogue we rewrote and re-recorded 50 or 60 times to get the intonation right and the the exact uh, piece of story that we needed, you know, right. Yeah, it was, it, it, that, that was easily the hardest thing to do. And again, when you watch the film, it seems to just flow effortlessly. But that's because we... We, we, we worked at it for months and months and months to get it there. Yeah, it, it, it's, it's, I, I'm just thrilled that people seem to like it, you know, because you really have no idea. That's what I keep saying. It's like, yeah. you hope people do and you trust your instincts. But when you get this kind of reaction from the audience, it's, it's just the best. Because as filmmakers, you dream of playing a part or working on a movie that has some kind of cultural impact, you know, mm-hmm. one way or another. And so it's it's very exciting that Top Gun's found that audience. I go to the movie theaters very frequently, pretty much every single weekend. And I just remember right. I was there. I was there for opening weekend. I can't remember the last time I saw an audience as engaged and as silent and so like 
just taking in every single moment, every single beat of this film and just like hitting everything that you would expect, the the laughs that they wanted. I heard people yeah. sniffling and crying. I admit I yeah, cried. Yeah, yeah. I cried too during the the particularly during the Val Kilmer scene. I mean, that was yeah, that was yeah. truly handled so beautifully. But this is one of those experiences that I was so happy to see so many other people fully engrossed in this film. And I mean, that's just a, that just shows how, how wonderful of a job you and your team accomplished with this. Thank you. Thank you. It means so much to hear that. It's so exciting. Thank you. Of course, of course. Well, Eddie, I don't want to take up too much more of your time today. Thank you so very much for for chatting with me and truly congratulations on an amazing job and the wonderful things that have happened since the release. Thank you so much. I'm so grateful. Thank you. So nice to talk to you. I hope I'll pass across again. I hope so too. is inevitable, Maverick. You kind of set it for extinction. Maybe so, sir. But not today. First and foremost, how committed were Tom Cruise and Joseph Kaczynski to getting accuracy for the type of planes and what things were going to sound like on this? Very committed. Um, <laughs> Joe was more, more focused initially on authenticity. Uh, he wanted to make sure that we had access to as much of the actual material as possible. And and he and executive producer Tommy Harper, uh, while they were still working on the script, made sure that we were able to uh, get recordings, get access to the Navy, and really be able to to dive in uh, to those actual you know projects, uh, those actual jets, and get the material. Tom obviously would also be invested in that as well, but he was more invested in the storytelling. So how do we use sound to tell the story? And I think Chris can elaborate on that. Chris was on the mix stage quite a bit with Tom. Yeah, I mean, I think that's true. I think the all the fantastic work that Al did early on and just collating and recording for weeks and weeks of just creating this fantastic um, raw original material that formed the basis for this soundtrack, then later in the process, then it's about how that works. And then there's design for the storytelling aspect and um, and then how it feels in the mix and how a scene will work and how an action scene will work with the raw uh, original sound that Al recorded on the, you know, the aircraft carrier, but we might add layers that he's added. And then we might in the, in the final mix, just add a little bit more for emphasis it, it's a classic sort of mix story in that respect, but the authenticity was at the back and, you know, through to the forefront of our minds. It varied, you know. You, yeah, you, you, of course. Again, I mean, there's no Dark Star jets. So, exactly. You know, yeah, yeah, the Dark yeah, Star is yeah. a little different from the F-18s. Don't you know that you're a grown-up? I'm a grown-up. Me too. Yep, me too. But you know, these days, being a grown-up can really suck. Luckily, we're grown-ups who grew up in the coolest generation. We had video arcades. And also some of the best TV and movies ever made. We lived the origin of awesome consumer electronics. The list goes on and on. Yep, Generation X. Exactly. And we're Gen X Grown-Up. Every week, the Gen X Grown-Up podcast explores media, tech, 
toys, games, and more from both yesterday and today. Through the eyes of Generation Xers who absolutely love that stuff. You can find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Or find us on our website, GenXGrownUp.com. All right, you think that was good enough? I I hope so, man. I'm tired. (laughs) Who listens to a promo on a podcast and then goes and listens to a different podcast? I've never done it. (laughs) But still, everything is grounded. And anything that you hear, it does have some kind of organic grounding to it. And then it's all about what the story wants you to hear at any particular time. You know, there are moments when we're in the jet where we hardly hear anything but the breathing or the dialogue. And that's intentional. We've literally peeled away all other sounds. You know, so if you wanted to be more literal, you would probably add some jet wine or some jet rumble or, or something. But in our cases, the story was we're with the characters. Uh, so that's a, a you know one example of where uh, storytelling took forefront over over sound design. Well, that's funny you mentioned that because one thing I noticed a lot of the times when we're in those cockpit shots is with the characters, you do play up the physicality of what they're doing. Like every time the jet flips, you hear like, you know, is there... They're twisting and jerking. So tell me a little bit more about building the sounds inside the cockpit. Well, the sounds inside the cockpit were were nominal most of the time. It was usually when we would cut out of the cockpit. Now, mm-hmm. what you did here in the cockpit was the throttles and the buttons. And then on occasion, you know, for example, when Phoenix uh, engine fire left, engine fire right, there's chaos there. You know, you're hearing the alarms going off. You're hearing... Uh, the alert saying engine fire left, engine fire right, and you do start to feel some of that jet. But most of the time, which is true to the the original Top Gun, which is that when you cut inside the cockpit, it's sort of a bubble. Mm -hmm. And then you cut out, and that's when the power kicks in. So it's this this dynamic that we intentionally created, that the filmmakers intentionally created, and it allows – you to go from zero to a hundred and feel those those dynamics and feel that those maneuvers. You mentioned obviously the Navy gave you access to record a lot of great sound effects. So tell me about that process of recording all these authentic jet sounds. It was it was a treat. It was uh, and again, it's thankful to our filmmakers who gave us access and made sure that we had the opportunity early on to do this. And uh, I um, I had actually uh, gone out in the early 2000s on a different aircraft carrier. And so I had a little bit of experience doing that. Uh, I'd also been to Top Gun in Fallon, Nevada, where they actually trained the Top Gun pilots. So mm. I'd, I'd been around enough jets to know the process. So this time um, we were a little better prepared, but it was just days and days of jets launching and jets catching wires and and all of the uh, various mechanisms that operate the catapults and the cable machinery, the PA system, which you know Chris can tell you about. They um, they really took advantage of some of those live PAs that we recorded to add some flavor. You know anything and everything jet related, navy related. We we were given access to, and we recorded you know, hundreds of hours of all kinds of, of jet material. And then from that, we just called through it all and picked out some of the best material to use for the film and manipulated it in a way that it worked for the cut. Uh, it was, it was wonderful. Chris, you want to unpack the, the PA aspect he's talking about? Again, 
again, what was great was they had this really lovely, authentic, original recordings, and um, it was used very sparingly, sparingly early on, but it's got a big story point when Rooster and Maverick are trying to con converse at one point, and you've just got this really lovely, authentic, echoey, bouncing off the, the sort of surfaces on board the aircraft carrier, and... To be honest, it was made my life very easy having these lovely recordings because you could play that up. And um, again, the story was that it needed to be confusing and we combined uh, two or three of them and you just create this cacophonous sound and it's fleeting in the story, but it just works really nicely. So again, on my side of the desk, typically with dialogue and music, I won't um, you know, get these raw um, sound effects, you know, or jet engine recordings, but th things like wild tracks like that were wonderful, really yeah, excellent mm. to give authenticity and, and again, narrative, brilliant, really useful. So obviously you've mentioned music a couple times. Um, this project, I would say a big part of the reason it hits so hard is in the third act, the way the music comes in, we have both the classic Top Gun theme and this new riff on the Lady Gaga song. So tell me a little bit about working with this team of what, four different composers uh, on the, the musical side of things? In some ways, you're as a mixer, you're often, because you're at the end of the process, typically, a lot of the work has been done in terms of what's delivered mm -hmm. for you. So a lot of the machinations of who composes what or what tracks are going to sure. appear in the movie. And COVID and the pandemic actually added to that slight sense of isolation. So Cecile Tornasak, the music editor, was collating a lot of stuff. And there were there were lots of thematic bits, musically, uh, bits of music that had been established early on and some that still needed refining. So it sort of came together over the the multiple weeks of the final mix. But from my point of view, I would get uh, a multi-track, a typical sort of mix of 5.1, 7.1 surround stems. And sometimes I wouldn't be totally aware of who composed it unless I knew the theme. So early mm -hmm. on, I had I had a 5.1, uh, it was a new mix of Danger Zone. There had been, it was a, there was a, a remaster of the movie Top Gun, I think. So I had a 5.1, for example, on that, just a single 5.1, no stems. But what was fun, uh, just uh, you, you know, your questions more about the broader sense of the music, but specifically on that, I was able to grab the center speaker, the center track between lines, which had a lovely percussive thing, and pan it around the room in the atmos, mm. and then come back for the vocal lines. So you're you're looking. So I was able to have, even though there was different compositions and 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 different delivery formats. For example, another one would be the the Who track stereo, recorded, you know um 40 50 years ago and there was just the emphasis on incorporating that into the soundtrack to make it feel like it was beefy and bassy and full just like the other atmos tracks i had mm. so really the, the overall answer is that a lot had been decided for me but, but um i would recognize some of the different um you know ori origins of where the music was coming from we we actually, you know, in a uh, in a perfect world, we would record typically orchestras all in the same room. But this was a, right. was a lot of separate recording. So we had cellists all separate. We had violinists, and, and and you know, so that was part of it as well. So the emphasis again was trying to maximize what we had because we were, as I said, slightly isolated, and we we're you know it was really early on in the pandemic, and we were in sort of mini lockdown. You know, so yeah, it's funny you mention that because I had it in my head that the film was basically wrapped up by the time uh, COVID really started. So there, there was a lot of 
posts that you guys were having to work with during isolation? Yeah, loads of work. A lot, a lot of work had been done in the States and Skywalker and Al had been on it for a long time. And then it just shifted over to the UK for the, a fairly lengthy final mix. And that was at the point we were in lockdown, but we established a kind of safe environment for Tom um, Cruz and Chris McQuarrie, who were, were in the UK, and Eddie Hamilton, the editor, and Al and Joe Kaczynski and Jerry Bruckheimer were in the States. So unfortunately, they couldn't be hands on, but we were able to feed our mixes through to them for notes and so on and so forth as the mix unfolded. Yeah. Wasn't uh, Chris Levinson, the film's original editor, wasn't he uh, involved to some degree in post as well in this? He was brought on um, sort of midstream when Eddie was deep in the edit. So Eddie Hamilton was the lead picture editor Mm -hmm. and he was on from beginning to end. And in the middle, there was a lot of crunch to get all of this material put together. And Eddie was working more in the UK and Joe and Jerry were uh, in the States. This is pre-pandemic, but still separate teams working in conjunction. And so they brought Chris on just to help out with some of the you know, the, the the work that had to be done. It was such a huge workload. They shot more footage on this film than any film thus far that Eddie could recollect anyway, just you know, hundreds of hours. And so Chris, who was a veteran from the first film, uh, was brought on to help out with some of the sequences. And one of the things he he brought to to us in the sound department was the concept of the sort of the sharp cuts mm. with um, with picture and sound on the original film, as you may recall, you know, we're in the we're in the control tower and then we bang into the plane and it's just a and then you cut inside and it goes quiet, bubble. And then you bang over to the MIGs and it's you know, they've got these sharp, phasey kind of cutaways, and it's all very sharp and articulated and it pops. And what Chris identified was, you know, back in the 80s when they mixed and edited this, it was all on mag film, which meant the sound was printed to these six track, you know, film reels of um, of mag tape, magnetic mm-hmm. tape. And so the way that they put the film together was they, you know, they'd cut the film, which was 35 millimeter film, and they'd cut the mag uh, correspondingly with it in sync. And so they just do these butt cuts. Um, which is different from, you know, on mag, you can take and you can use razor blades to do these long fades and these what they call scrapes where you you can ramp in and ramp out. But they didn't do that. They just went. Choo. And so it was a mechanical process that created a a style for for the soundtrack. And Chris was um, integral in sort of accentuating that. And Tom, from the very beginning, one of the first times I met Tom was on a Zoom and it was with Eddie Hamilton and he, you know, we had just done a, a temp mix and he comes on and he goes, the cuts have to bang. I want to hear the jets pang. You know, I want to hear them pop and punch. And, you know, it. he recalled that first film where that aesthetic was established. So Chris articulated how they did it back then. And then we worked with him and Joe and Tom to establish that this time around what we did to even accentuate it more was you'll notice there's these low end punches these low-end mm-hmm. sub hits when you cut to the jets it's poof, and it's just taking advantage of that of 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 this atmos environment and of the modern technology that we have in theaters where we now have subwoofers and 
you know, much more tools uh, at our disposal. Now, uh, last question before I go here, I would be remiss. I know he's not here, but I would love to hear uh, Mark a little bit about Mark Weingarten's production work. If either of you can speak to that and kind of what he provided you both to work with. Yeah, it's it was an interesting journey because there's um, there's some the, the raw tracks, location tracks are really fundamental right throughout the movie. Um, and and of course, there was some the obvious scenes on on, on terra firma are easier. They're more t- a traditional kind of miking and setup, and they were b- beautiful for me for all the voices. I always loved the um, I had these rich voices, the John Hamm and Charles Parnell, great stuff to work with, you know, and Tom Cruise himself. As a kid, I always thought he had a slightly higher voice because in the UK we got the films playing back at 25 frames as opposed to 24. And so so it was great to hear the, the true pitch of Tom. Um, I mean, as I said, it's a recollection from being a real youngster. It's crazy, you know, a lot of the films where I grew up to. Had, Chris, had I'm going to stop you right there because it looks like Mark just entered the chat. Well, perfect timing. Yeah. Mark, I was just now. having them uh, speak to your work. Are you here? There he Hi, is. Mark. What's happening? I was out. Put the boom closer to your to your mouth, Mark. <laughs> gain up the um, g- gain up the input. <laughs> Mark, there, the, there you go. They were just talking about your production work. So why don't you tell me a little bit about what you recorded on set and um where you mic'd up your actors in those jets? Yeah, there were like two, a couple of different phases. Like first, I attempted to record like uh multi-channel like sort of surround thing inside of the um cockpit where i put a zoom recorder that has like uh you know like two pairs of mics that go out and but i didn't really like like what i was getting material wise and they were very concerned about any equipment getting loose in there that could like hit somebody like on you know high g-forces and stuff so i decided to remove it and i just basically ended up concentrating on dialogue in terms of the in-flight stuff and that was done initially with two mics, one patched into the systems to use the mic that's in the mask that's actually in the plane, and the other uh, like a lavalier on the outside of their in their vest. But then um, we realized that the mask sound was perfect for what we needed, whether the mask was open or closed. So we just used that exclusively. We just ended up using mm-hmm. one mic, and then all the rest of the stuff I did, you know, lots of stereo stuff of the. Um, planes take off and landing and all that kind of stuff but mostly it was just we ended up paring it down to just the the mic and the mask because that was uh going to be the least lethal if something got loose <laughs> and and um you know yeah i originally thought i would maybe run a lob up into the mask but again the mask provides oxygen i didn't want to possibly interfere with that in some way you know the person really. who killed tom cruise i mean that, yeah and like also like amongst the requirements was they had to be able to eject if something went wrong. So my gear couldn't be connected. You know, it, had, it could only be connected to them, not to the plane, because it had, they had to be able to leave if they needed to. So there was a, like a weird, like the, the interesting thing about it was more like the restrictions to begin with than like the, you know, what and how to figure out how to work around them. It's wild. And then what about... Um... Just generally, I know we were hearing that John Hamm and a couple of the other actors had really pleasing voices to work with. Uh-huh. So uh, some of the scenes where you're shooting things that don't even involve planes. Tell me about that. Well, I'm, I mean, yeah, I mean, 
John Hamm was great, and the guy. Oh, what are their names? God, they all have those. Uh, what do they call their handles? They're not um, handles. They have uh, call signs. Call, yeah. What are their their call signs? Like Warlock. That guy, I love that guy. Cyclone Warlock. and Warlock. Yeah. Yeah. Warlock had a cool voice, and um, yeah, Warlock, Warlock, Charles Parnell, what a voice! Great voice. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So good. And um, I don't know. Nothing stands out much about that. I mean, all it was pretty straightforward. Yeah. The, the only thing was, you know, again, we couldn't really control our environments very much. You know, they were going to, if they decided that they were going to practice helicopter landings, you know, <laughs> all morning, there were going to be like 35 helicopters outside, you know, oh that kind God. of thing. I think in yeah. the end, you know, mostly we got pretty, pretty clean tracks for everybody. It all worked out pretty well. But uh, Before I go, Al, uh, what was the weirdest source do you did you talk with the foley team much do you know what the weirdest source of a sound they used was for this on foley um you know they definitely did some cockpit material um oh i know what we did so one of the things we were trying to create a sound for were the contrails on the jets you know Mm -hmm. oh yeah when the jets are cruising along and then you see that sort of white wispy uh, mm-hmm. stuff on the wings. And there's a variety of things that we use depending on the scene. But one of the things we did use was dry ice. I had the, mm. the Foley team play with dry ice and do these sort of braise and, and tones that, uh, again, when you've got this jet engine and you've got music and you've got all these things, we like to lean into more tonal elements as opposed to noise-based elements because they they cut through and they have a frequency and they have a personality about them. So we had the Foley team use some dry ice for uh, for some of that sound design. And uh, yeah, I don't know if you've ever played with it, but you can do some crazy stuff with that. Yeah, I've so never so played with dry ice. What were they doing with the dry ice? Were they like blowing air? Just various surfaces. Or? You put it on various surfaces. Usually uh-huh. metallic surfaces are the uh-huh. best, of course. But you get these, you know, this this sort of pressure, pressure squealing. I don't like the sort of high-pitched pig squeal stuff. But if you put it like I remember we put it on a timpani drum uh-huh. and it had this kind of more bowed sound to it. And um it's just a it's it's a great little bit of personality. It's um uh yeah, and you know, used in the right context, uh, you wouldn't know what it is. It's just this sort of tonality that that adds to the um, adds to the to the scene. That's really cool. I love Easter eggs like that. Yeah. What about in the beginning and the the first scene where he's going the you know, Mach ten, and you had all that sort of smoky kind of cloud stuff whipping by the cockpit? What's what was used for that sound? <laughs> uh, I, I was actually just speaking to somebody about this the other day. There's a number of things, but one of my other favorite. Uh, secrets that I've shared is um, we went to record jet engines at GE in Cincinnati, Ohio. So cool. And uh, we we went all over the country. We went to Miami and Connecticut and a few other places. And while in Cincinnati, there's a bridge that goes between Kentucky and Cincinnati over the Ohio River. And there's this old suspension bridge called the Roebling Bridge. And it is all of these metal uh, metal grates or the the, uh-huh. the, the old school me- um, steel grates on the bridge. And as the cars would go by, it makes this great. Oh, cool. And it was just such a beautiful sound. And it was so funny because, you know, I'm out there to record jets and <laughs> you know, I had some time off and I was just walking across the bridge 
And it was a fairly quiet day. And so you just get one vehicle go by and it would just make this amazing sound. So that's one of the one of the flavors in that is you hear this this tonal warping. And you know, the the jet doesn't exist. It's a you know, it's a fictional jet, even though the technology does exist. It wasn't like we could go and record a, a hyperjet, you know, right. down at Edwards Air Force Base. They don't right. uh, they're not <laughs> flying yet. And so we had to create some of that stuff. And that was one of the first scenes we saw was uh, visual effects wise was the dark star. And so it was such a dramatic visual that we wanted to come up with something that was unique to it and and special. So that's that's one of the things we used was that that Roebling bridge. That's awesome. Yeah, and I was See, this doing, is um, why. Wait, no, Mark, do you have another one you're curious about? I was about? just going to say, this is from a different movie, but when I was doing Girl with a Dragon Tattoo, there was this uh, air conditioning unit on the, stu- on the studio in this space, and it had this old, like, big belt that drove it that kind of squealed, this, like, horrible kind of, like, mm-hmm. and, um, Fincher said to me, can you record that? And I go, <laughs> yes. So, like, at lunch, you know, when everybody left, I turned it on, I just put a mic on it for, like, an hour, and that sound i hear it through the whole movie it's like they oh yeah no, david loves those <laughs> yeah. edgy weird sounds yeah i actually worked on that with ren uh that's a oh, great yeah yeah ren ren Kleiss is is a maestro he's oh i'm sure that man needs to win an oscar he's on like nomination nine he, they're always he, so he good. needs to yeah he needs to be dubbed you know king of sound design he's one of one of my many mentors who i'm grateful to know he's fantastic yeah and he has well, llamas right He's llamas. He what? does. He has he llamas. Has llamas and, yeah. uh, well, no, he has uh, goats, not llamas. Oh, that's weird. I thought he had llamas. <laughs> had llamas. Anyway. All right, guys. Well, I think, unfortunately, I'm about out of time. But this is fantastic. Yeah. I mean, just wonderful work, and I, I do feel pretty good about your team winning the Oscar for this. So, um, <laughs> it's very exciting, and congratulations. It's obviously well deserved. Best sound Thank experience I've had in the theater Thank in years. Thank you very so. much. Thank you. Nice talking to you. All right, likewise. Thanks, guys. Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to Emma Sassick's interview with the Oscar-nominated editor for Top Gun Maverick, Eddie Hamilton, and Will Mavity's interview with the sound team, re-recording mixer Chris Burton, supervising sound editor Al Nelson, and sound mixer Mark Weingarten, here on the Next Best Picture podcast. Top Gun Maverick is nominated for six Academy Awards, including Best Picture, Best Film Editing, and Best Sound and is up for your consideration. You have been listening to the Next Best Picture podcast. We are proud to be part of the Evergreen Podcast Network, and you can subscribe to us anywhere where you subscribe to podcasts. Be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and let us know what you think of the show. We really appreciate your feedback and your support, which you can also lend on over at Patreon. For $1 minimum a month, you'll get some exclusive podcast content from us. Thank you so much for listening, as always, and we will see you all next time.
I'm Christina Yerling Biro, host of the podcast Pop Culture Confidential. Join me as I go way behind the scenes with some of the most influential people in entertainment and media. Hear actors such as Succession's Brian Cox talk about his favorite characters to play. There always has to be a mystery. The audience have to be in a situation where they want to know what's going on. Meet studio execs like Pixar chief Pete Docter and learn his secret on how he makes us cry. Emotion is our first language. And so many others who are defining popular culture, from Obama speechwriter David Litt to Top Chef host Padma Lakshmi. We don't often think about food politically or we don't want to, but it really is. Join me. Search for Pop Culture Confidential wherever you get your podcasts.